good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Angie Hellier, author of The Wiser Divorce, Positive Strategies for Your Next Best Life. Uh, Angie is the founder and managing partner of Hallier and Lawrence, PLC. She ranked the number one family law firm in Arizona. Her practice includes complex divorce and legal separation, business issues, incident to divorce, spousal maintenance, appellate work, and paternity issues. And she has been named a super lawyer by superlawyers.com every year since 2007. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Angie. Hi, Catherine. Great to be here with you. Great to have you, and I want to just preface this interview with the fact that I, too, am an expert because I have been divorced, or I consider myself somewhat of an expert, So, although it's been many, many years. So the wiser divorce, you're giving us positive strategies for your next best life. This is for people or individuals who are, what, in contemplating divorce, in the midst of maybe an ugly divorce and, and may have the ability to change the direction of the divorce. Um, Give us a, you know, the, what is the wiser divorce going to do for us? Right. Well, divorce as a battle zone and as a war is not healthy for anyone in families, and it's not healthy for our society. And after 25 years of practicing family law, I know what kind of strategies can make a divorce go surprisingly right or horribly wrong. And there really are strategies about how you, when you talk about your divorce to people or your attorney or your soon-to-be ex or your children, the actions you take in your divorce and the attitude you bring to your divorce. And all of those things profoundly impact how you get on to your next best life. And I'll tell you, I really do believe sometimes for people, the best part of their life is after their divorce. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's just going through the process, and obviously I think in the beginning making that decision to get a divorce. You know, the rap is, Angie, that maybe sometimes couples are ready to get divorced and they want to do it amicably, but what happens is they each go to their own attorneys and the attorneys are the ones who get them going and going after each other and so that they can supposedly make more money. Um, is that the case or Well, sometimes it is, you know, and that's really unfortunate. I think it's becoming more and more prevalent that attorneys see themselves as strategic allies focusing on helping you move to the next part of that life. But when you have the, you know, beat the drum, your soon-to-be ex is a horrible guy, I hate the other attorney kind of attorney, it really costs a lot of money and emotion and can harm your family, especially if you have children for years to come. So when you're looking for an attorney, you want to pick someone who's able to guide you, will give you goals, calms you down, and helps you separate the emotions attached to a divorce from the process of going through a divorce. Angie, how do you separate that, though, when you're trying to find an attorney, as you're describing, um, from the fact that you want somebody also who represents you, who's going to be tough, or shouldn't I use that word, uh, who's going to represent your interests? Divorce, after all, is about money and children, isn't it? I mean, in the end, that's what it's all about, who gets what uh, in both those arenas. You want an attorney who can use honey as effectively as hard courtroom advocacy, because good attorneys 
will be your advocate and they will stand up for you in the courtroom and they will be tough, but they also need to know when not to be tough. You know, at the beginning of the divorce, that sets the tone for your entire process. So at the beginning, they need to help you calm down. They need to talk about what can be done quickly to move towards the end. And I I often tell people, you know, one of the ways to think about this is your divorce is a house. And in one room is the room you go in with your attorney. That's the room where you look at the things you were talking about, assets, debts, you know, who will have the children when. Then you have another room, and that's where all your emotions can be about the divorce, your rage, your anger, your fears, and and. The good attorneys will help you not have the wall break down between those rooms. And it's inevitable sometimes that you're going to have all those emotions and bring it to the process, but good attorneys help you separate that. Part of the problem is when you're deciding to get a divorce, obviously you're getting a divorce because you have all the whatever, you're angry, you're in a rage, you're mad. Um, so it's kind of, I'm not saying it's an oxymoron, but isn't it so difficult to be able to go in and keep one you know, your, your emotions in one box and then what you have to accomplish in another. How do you do it? I know you describe it specifically in the book, so maybe we should get into that. How do you, you know, identify some of the bad habits, as you talk about, that will lead to unhealthy choices, like making decisions based on emotion or getting into these horrendous battles with your soon-to-be ex-spouse? Right. Well, one important piece is to focus on the future instead of the muck of the divorce. You know, sometimes people going through divorce, it just feels like quicksand and they feel like they're sinking and they're sinking and they don't come up and look around till it's all over. So one of the goals is to really start planning out your next life. Um, Some of the techniques are to look and really evaluate what was good in the marriage because quite honestly, there probably were some good things. Um, and list those out and think about what am I going to carry forward that I got from this marriage. Think about, wow, what, what did I not get in this marriage? Where wasn't I fulfilled? What were the things I wanted to do that I didn't do? Start to look at those items, and that's one way to future, you know, focus yourself on the future. Um, you also want to prioritize your goals and understand that this is about, in, in resolving this, what you can live with, not necessarily what you what you want. Another really important tip is to right, under- explain that one. Right. That's a big one. I don't want to kind of gloss over that. Okay. Yeah, that cause that has to do with the finances. Oh, I'm sorry. Which one did you want me to talk more about? The one that you what you can live with rather oh, than what sorry. you actually go in there thinking that you want. And I think we're talking. Are we talking yes. about money? Are we talking about time with the kids? I think that's an important issue. So I don't want to gloss over that one. So, yes, you know, it has to do with everything. And one of the things is to accept things will change. If you were the stay-at-home mom, let's say, you may have to go back to work. You may have to live with the fact that you will not be at home with your children 100% the rest of the time. If you were the person who provided most financially for the family, you're going to have to live with the fact that you're going to part with some of your money probably, and you have to accept that. It may not be what you want, but what can you live with? And, you know, also when it comes to kids, it's tough when the roles change. You don't maybe want to ever go home at night and not see your children or tuck them into bed. But acknowledging that things are going to change is one big piece. And all these things cost money. You're absolutely right. When you focus only on, you know, getting your wants met instead of what you can live with, you spend a lot of money, emotional energy, um, and you lose time in your life. 
How do you know when you go into an attorney? Let's say you've read your book and you have an idea of what would, is a wiser divorce. Um, I mean, would you, when you meet with your attorney and then you find I, this attorney, do you interview the attorney first um, with this in mind? Like this person, this may not be the person for me. They may not have read your book or not have that same kind of an attitude and they may be very adversarial. Um, do, would you suggest to interview, sort of interview attorneys in the same way some of us interview physicians? I, I do. Um, I recommend don't just go, don't just hire the first divorce attorney you go to, even if you feel great with them, because attorneys have distinctly different styles and personalities and approaches to the practice of law and divorce. You want someone who makes you feel comfortable, who makes you feel like they will be your ally and have your back. Someone who will um, help you, even in that first meeting, identify what are reasonable goals and what are unreasonable goals. Um, ask them about what different types of mediation or collaboration they do to try to get you to resolve your case out of court. Ask them things like how they bill. How often will you get the bill? Will they co- consult with you about the cost? Um, how do they like to have, do they like to have phone calls, in-person meetings, emails? All of those questions are important in getting someone um, that you are comfortable with because this really is, because of all the emotions attached, you need someone that you really have a rapport with. Is there a difference between, let's say, a couple who has no children or, and little finances? Is that a, usually a more easy, an easier divorce than somebody who maybe has a lot of businesses and a lot of financial success and perhaps a lot of many children? Um, because that sets up kind of a, a different kind of a situation, doesn't it? Right. Sometimes, um, sometimes you'd be surprised. Sometimes people with less wealth or less assets actually fight harder because there's less to go around. But each of the, any divorce you have, it really comes down to what emotional state you're going to bring to the divorce. And, you know, especially if you don't have a lot of money, every single hour you pay an attorney or you, or, or you miss work is money you're not going to have when you get through with this. So really, it's really about your mental state. And obviously, you know, if there's complex business issues, those may take longer, but they're not necessarily harder. What about the laws in different states? Because that sets up kind of a different scenario, doesn't it? Can you just give us an example? Like there are different kinds. I mean, obviously, there are lots of different statutes, I guess, that apply to, to, to a divorce. But, um, I mean, you're in Arizona, how, how does it work in terms of monies and, and when you get divorced? Is it 50-50? Half goes to you know each uh, couple or, or each person in the couple? Or um, can you talk right. about... Yeah. Um, Arizona is a community property state, as are many of the western coast states, which means that anything accumulated during the marriage will be equally split at the time of divorce. So any money earned, any retirement... Um, that gets divided equally. Not so in every other state. Other states have different ways of looking at how assets get divided, and they're not necessarily 50-50. Um, each state has its own unique child support guidelines that they apply for divorces in the, their state, and they can vary vastly from the age at which child support stops to the way child support is calculated. Um, and spousal maintenance is another one. Some states have actual formulas for determining the amount of maintenance one 
um, spouse will pay to the other, and some of them have no guidance at all. In Arizona, we don't have a calculation. We just have some criteria to go off of. So again, very important when you're talking to your attorney, even at the initial meeting, to understand how the law will apply to your circumstances in your state. Yeah. What about prenuptials? Do you rec- do you re- recommend a prenuptial to avoid some, you know, to be able to have a wiser divorce if and when that does happen? Well, you know, even people you would even people with their premarital agreements come in and somehow fight about them when they're getting divorced, depending on the circumstances. But they're very binding um, in most states. I think they're really important to have if you have um, older adults who are not going to have children, who have their own children from previous marriages, um, and who are coming in with their own assets. That's really important. I don't recommend them, and they worry me when you have a, a woman of childbearing years who may be coming into the marriage with her own career but plans to have children because, you know, you can't predict what's going to happen over 20 years. And if you have a premarital agreement where each spouse keeps their own earnings at the end of the divorce and there was a choice for a woman to be a stay-at-home for 20 years, that can be really bad at the end. So, in other words, here again, it just depends on your own unique situation, and you have to, what I get from you is that you really have to be clear about what your situation is, and once you do that, then you have less, I guess, less chance of getting into trouble, um, both emotionally and and practically. What about this, because this is something new to me, but you say, um, don't, um, the dangers, or you talk about discovering the dangers of discussing your divorce and finances on social media. Oh, yes. You know, this is such a problem now. Um, you know, I don't know. In our society, apparently now, a lot of people want to proclaim everything about themselves to everybody, and that is a dangerous thing to do in, in a divorce. Um, first of all, if you are bad-mouthing your soon-to-be ex in any way, in a way that other people can see. It means it may come back to your children if you have children. And some states are actually now curtailing parents' right of free speech in favor of protecting the children and upholding rulings um, telling parents you cannot talk about your ex online. You know, other things are your business or just, you know, how a judge may look at this when you get to court. You post pictures of yourself partying with your girlfriends because you're celebrating the divorce. Or, you know, I had a case where a man had his son, his young son, take the picture of him, kind of a sexy pose, that he, that he posted on his dating, um, online dating service. <laughs> So, so, you know, that didn't go over well with the judge. So you yeah, really and also, have... I'm thinking, I have this, uh, Angie, I'm thinking sometimes you take these pictures that are kind of out of context, too. I mean, you could be just at a, you can get your picture taken in a, in a naive situation. You're at a party or something, but somehow just the way it was, you may have your arm around your sister, who knows, you know, and, and then it gets taken in the wrong way if you put it up on Facebook and the judge has access to it. I mean, it all can get really complicated if, it, if things are, those Facebook pictures taken out of context. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing is if you have been in an abusive relationship, if you check in on Facebook or post things about where you are, I mean, you're allowing someone who's a potential stalker to know what you're doing and find out where you are. So what do you say to your clients? Give me an example, I mean, of a client. I mean, are you obviously of somebody who you've had who's either done that or you've had to, you know, curtail that kind of behavior and, you know, what was the outcome? 
Right. Well, first of all, attorneys have to tell their clients to not do it, but they can't instruct them to take things off of their computer that they've already posted because that's destroying evidence. So if you've already done it, it's going to be out there. You know, examples are a client where, I mean, she really had some um, physical issues and needed maintenance because of her inability to work. But you know what? She posted on her online dating how she loved to take long hikes and go boating and And you know what? She wasn't really telling the truth. She was kind of making up this dating profile, but everything she said on there was in opposite to her claim at court that she couldn't work. So you've got to be really careful. You do. It's really interesting. I mean, because this is something I'm sure that's just emerged, what, in the past five years, ten years? Yeah, five or ten years. Yeah. I, I mean, I've even had clients who have stumbled upon posted pictures of private parts of their soon-to-be ex online. So. <laughs> you have an interesting job. <laughs> I've heard it all. I'm sure you have. I'm sure there's nothing that you haven't heard or seen. Um, now, uh, let's talk about this issue, because this is always something that's kind of sticky, and you, do, you uh, cover this in the book. You uh, talk about dating. And uh, let's say after you're separated, well, what about when you're separated and dating? Let's take that. Should you, it's a long divorce perhaps just because it's, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that has to be um, addressed. But should you be dating when you're separated and your kids are, let's say you're sharing the children and they, you have equal custody or you have uh, physical custody equally. And there's a difference between physical custody and legal custody. Um, Yeah, you know, um, so it is really important that you not expose your children to new loves in your life, whether it's during the divorce or even in the initial months after the divorce. I mean, most professionals will say you should wait at least six months to a year after your divorce is final to even introduce your children to someone you're dating. Um, because you but know, I have to stop you there because very often the person that you're dating may be somebody they already know. It's your next-door neighbor, the one you've been having an affair with, or your husband's best friend, or the employer, or your spouse's boss. They already know them. Right. So don't introduce them as your girlfriend or boyfriend is probably the tip there. If they're already in their lives, you want them to think it's, you know... Whatever was happening before can keep happening. It's when they see you replacing that other parent. And it's so tough for kids. I mean, they, their, their dream is ending of parents being together. And they also, at that point in their lives, need so much attention from you. So, I mean, really bad examples. And this happens frequently. People are not smart about this. You know, they find a new love shortly after they move out. And now that person moves in and that person is with them all the time when they have their kids. That is so tough for kids. They need your attention. They want to know you still love them. And, you know, even people without children... When you're getting divorced, there may be a sense that, you know, gosh, I wish this would have worked out. I'm sorry it didn't. I've had settlements go way awry when one spouse learns the other spouse is dating. So it's not that you shouldn't do it. Just be really careful about how you do it. Yeah, you have to be really sensitive to the children. And we're talking, it's The Wiser Divorce is the book that we're discussing today, Positive Strategies for Your Next Best Life, Attorney Angie Hallier. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's very difficult. Well, it depends on the couple, I guess, but to be sensitive to the kids. And would you say also, Angie, be sensitive to their age? I mean, five-year-olds are different than 10-year-olds that are different than 17-year-olds when it comes to all this stuff. 
Yeah, to, as to a lot of stuff, but I'll tell you, when it comes to dating, all the kids, you know, feel that way. But that's another, you know, one of the particulars of your divorce is assessing your children's needs. Um, one of the worksheets we have in the book is really about inventorying your children's life as they experienced when you were married and looking at how you're going to help create that stability for them going forward when they have parents in separate homes. You know, and I tell people come in all day and say, uh, you know, my kids are my number one priority, but then they act in ways that, you know, shows they're really not because of these emotions they're having in the divorce. And I say the best gift two divorcing people can give their children is to know they still have a family with mom and dad, even though they live in separate homes. Give them that gift of co-parenting. Let them see you together no matter how you feel about your spouse. You owe that to your children. That sense of stability and security as much as you can do that. What about emails? I've noticed that I have friends who are in the process of divorce, and I think being able to email your spouse as opposed to say when I got divorced and you always had to be talking on the phone or face-to-face, which sometimes was very difficult, it's much easier to kind of accomplish what you need to accomplish with the kids just through emails. It makes it less personal. It really does. You know, people, and sometimes you have to have email rules for people because the other the other side of that is since no one's standing there, people sometimes go on and on and on and create five-paragraph emails <laughs> about something simple. So often we have to have email rules. It's going to be about the children only. It's going to be future-focused. It's going to only consist of three topics at once. But it re- that really has helped people. Although there's actually services out there now who will screen your email to your ex-spouse to make sure that it comes across right and not negative. What are those services? I mean, are there, you mean businesses that actually do that? Do you engage them as an attorney? Yeah, well, sometimes judges order them. One of them in our state is called ProperCom, and actually it's, it's because sometimes people just can't help themselves to put in that little, you know, that little yeah. twist of the knife, and they actually have a service where the email goes to them first, they clean it up, and they send it to the other, other parent. Would you recommend that anyone going through a divorce should also simultaneously go through counseling? I mean, I'm a social worker, so obviously I have a bias towards that, but that that's helpful to do that while you're going through a divorce? I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial because otherwise, you know, I can be a therapist, but it costs you a lot of money for me to be your therapist and your attorney. And, of course, I have to talk to you about your emotions and help you through. But people really do need someone like you who's qualified to help them deal with this on the side. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a process called collaborative divorce I talk about in my book. And that's kind of a team approach to divorce, and it's a wonderful way to divorce. And in that process, each person has their own divorce therapist, coach, who comes to the meetings. So, yes, I think it's crucial. Yeah, a collaborative divorce. Um, that's a good term. And, and um, <laughs> a difficult, I still say, I think it is a difficult one to achieve. Have you ever been with clients who, because, I mean, you're an expert, this is what you do, um, and you create these wiser divorces, hopefully. Are there any couples or individuals that you just, can you give us an example of someone maybe, it, they just couldn't do it? I mean, it just, they weren't able to achieve some of these goals that you're, we've been discussing? Well, yeah, you know, sometimes people just can't do it. It's like, you know, there's some great athletes and some athletes that don't train enough, you know, and don't do the right thing. But, you know, some of the tough cases are when there's significant abuse in the marriage. I mean, because you have one person who'll never probably be able, without a lot of therapy, to do the wiser divorce because they're abusers at heart. So 
sometimes it's really hard for people who have been cheated on. I mean, that's tough because you feel then your entire marriage has been a lie. You mistrust every step the other person takes in a divorce. They could offer you the moon and you wouldn't think it's enough. So, so those are really tough too. And then there's sometimes those um, exes that I call the Taliban. I mean, you, you can't ask why they do what they do because you'll never understand it. They're not reasonable. They'll never come to the table. And in those situations, all you can do is be wise yourself. Sometimes the other side just won't. Yeah, so there are cases where it's just impossible, as you just described, cases of abuse and, and those kinds of things. So what, you just do the best you can, the best you can. You act, you do what you do because of who you are if you're going to do good stuff and you can't relate it to the other person. Absolutely. I tell people, you know, you want to bring your best traits and qualities to the divorce because that will really help you put it behind you and get on. So think about what people say about you. What are you proud about? Do you help people in crisis? You know, how do you respond to a crisis? Try to bring those characteristics to your divorce. And, you know, I know all this is hard and it takes work, but these are really, there really are strategies you can employ to help you through this process. Angie, since you've been in practice for 20 years, that's a long time, do you ever have couples or individuals come back to you and say, you know, thank you, I'm happier, um, and a lot had to do with the way my divorce went through, and I'm with somebody else, or whatever the situation is? Yes, you know, and I tell some of those stories in in my book. You know, I've had people, it's, people come in sometimes, and they just, their faces are sad, and they're crying, and you know, in a year, and I keep in touch with a lot of clients, in a year they look totally different and they're happy. You know, I've had women who just didn't know what they were going to do because the home was their domain, and they've gone on to create wonderful careers. Um, I have one gal who did a, a worldwide documentary when she used to be a CPA. I mean, you can really have a whole new life when you're done. So you have an enormous, obviously, an enormous impact, not just on the individuals and the couples, but on the children. What about the children? Do you ever maintain, let's say, older children, any contact with, with teenagers, for instance, who may have been a part of this whole divorce process? Yeah, no, but I hear from them because good attorneys really don't meet with the children personally and one-on-one. We hire outside therapists to assess that. So it's kind of a no-no to speak to the children, but I still do have clients who will send me um, pictures of their kids as they grow up and say, thank you so much for what you did. So, you know, kids can really go on to have great lives after the divorce, too, and people need to remember that. So what do we want to leave our list? We have got a couple minutes left, and uh, I want to mention the book again. Obviously, The Wiser Divorce, Positive Strategies for Your Next Best Life, uh, Angie Hallier, an attorney. Uh, you can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. Do you have a website that's related to, well, obviously your, your firm, but the book we can yes. go to, yeah. TheWiserDivorce.com, there are free form downloads there. You can order the book there as you can on Amazon. And I would just leave people um, with the thought that you need to stop the negative flow of energy into your divorce. That is number one. Strategically think about your thoughts, process your divorce without blame, commit to healthy communication, and look at what you can do with the rest of your life. That sounds great. If we can all follow that... Um, I think most of us would be in good stead when we go through a divorce. Just one last statistics that we didn't go, and I didn't ask you about any statistics, but what is the divorce rate right now? Do we know? Yes, nationally it's still about 50% on the first divorce, or excuse me, first marriage, 
and that rate gets higher with each successive marriage you have. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine. We got lots of great, good information. And Angie Hallier, The Wiser Divorce, Positive Strategies for Your Next Best Life. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Randy Susan Myers, author of Accidents of Marriage. Randy Susan Myers is the author of The Comfort of Lies and The Murderer's Daughter and a finalist for the Massachusetts Book Award. Uh, her writing is informed by her work with batterers and victims of domestic violence, as well as her experience with youth impacted by street violence. And she lives, Randy lives with her husband in Boston, where she teaches writing seminars at the Grub Street Writers Center. She's also a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Randy. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Captain. I really appreciate it. All right, so we're going to be talking about accidents of marriage. Tell us, first of all, what is accidents of marriage about? Accidents of marriage is a novel that examines when a marriage is too broken to fix 
Uh, it's the story of a family on the edge and uh, how they got there. It could be the, anybody's family when things go too far. For, I really like to explore the collateral damage that comes from not taking care of yourself. Okay, when Maddie, you say it could be any, let's go, backtrack a little. You say it could be about anybody's family when things go too far. And so what do you mean by this? I mean, this book has a specific theme of um, abuse, um, but you're saying this applies to other general kinds of situations where things go too far with a family? You absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. In, in this particular family, Maddie, um, she loves her husband, and he's brilliant and, and charming, um, but he turns into a raging... He's a lawyer who turns into a raging bull when crossed. And she's a social worker who never is sure what's going to make him go off. And she keeps a fragile peace by vacillating between tiptoeing around him and asserting herself. But mainly she's in denial of the effect that his temper has on her and on the family. Well, isn't and this, this is typical of abusers and abusees, isn't it? This is the pattern. I mean, as a social worker, um, and you know, when you have a one person who is the abuser, and in this case, he's a lawyer. Um, you know, when he's good, he's very, very good, and when he's horrid, he's horrid, and uh, that's kind of what keeps you in the loop. I think it's what keeps you in the loop, but I think this goes beyond what people think of it as, because I think it's really easy for people to deny abusive behavior in their own lives. Um, when I worked with batterers, and I worked with them for eight years, ten years. Um, and when you were, what were you when you were doing that? I was an educator uh, running violent intervention groups where I was teaching them tools for nonviolence. And they were sent by the courts. And so when I first started doing it, I thought, okay, them and me. You know, they're bad, I'm good. And I was hit a lot as a child, and I had vowed to never hit, and I never did, never hit my children. But I screamed at them, and I didn't realize until working with the guys that I wasn't watching what I said. I wasn't watching what I did as carefully as I could, and that I had to assess my own behavior. And nobody would ever describe me as an abusive parent, but yet there were times when my temper got the best of me. I thought it got the best of me. What it was was that I let it get the best of me and hurt my children, and I had to face that. Ben is somebody who goes way too far. He comes in, he lets loose. But I think this happens in a lot of homes. And when the tragedy happens, it's because he just wasn't watching himself. Do we want to talk about what the tragedy is, or uh, Randy, or not? Or is that going to ruin the story for everyone who's going to go out and get the book? Well, I think think it's, it's fair to say that he has road rage and it causes an accident. I think that's out there. The, que- the, the question to me about the book is, what do you do from there? How do you face the truth? What does truth actually mean? How does denial keep you in the worst place in a marriage, whether you are the person who's causing the abusive behavior or causing the road rage, or whether you're the person who's keeping quiet because you think it's keeping the peace? What is that line where there is tremendous collateral damage from what you think is going to be a small action? And, I mean, how many of us have been with a spouse in the car when they've just been so angry? You know, um, when they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe how much traffic there is in this switching lanes. 
How right, far so do we think ahead? If you have somebody who does that on a regular basis, we're talking, well, let's say on a regular basis, mm-hmm. you're saying, or we have to examine what's our role in that situation. What, you know, you've got two of the kids in the back seat, or obviously you've got a, four people in the car. What is our responsibility? Is that what you're saying? Or what is the person's responsibility to the person who is, like, engaged, say, in this road rage and putting everyone into lives in danger? I'm saying what is the responsibility of ourselves in, in looking at whether we treat people outside our homes better than we treat people inside our homes? Um, I'm saying that when you are screaming and yelling and getting your rage out of your system, are you aware that you're now putting it on top of somebody else? Is there another way that you can exist in this world? And what happens in a family when people aren't watching their behavior? I don't think that the way that the character acts in my book, Ben, is really all that extreme from what happens in a lot of homes. I think it, hap- it doesn't happen in all homes, but I think almost everybody, can, if they're honest, will say there's a moment when they let loose and they think, oh my gosh, my buttons were pushed. Or, oh my gosh, you know, oh, if he, she said that and it made me say this. How do we learn to start taking responsibility for our own behavior? In the novel, what, about that, what about if it's if it's intermittent? It's not all the time. I think anyone, uh, if they've been in a marriage long enough, or a relationship long enough, or in a family, that's going to happen at some point. But if, isn't it becomes really dangerous when it happens consistently and there's a pattern of abuse or a pattern of that kind of behavior? I think both things are true. I think three things are true. I think it's very dangerous when it happens consistently, and I'm looking at a family where it's happening more and more and more. I also think that we shouldn't give ourselves a heck of a lot of outs for, well, of course it's going to happen sometimes that I'm going to really lose my temper. Yes, we all get really angry, but how that anger enacts, we actually have much more we think. People often say I lost control, and what I tend to think is that we choose not to use our control at that moment. Mm-hmm. So that makes us, we're in the driver's seat. We have that choice. It's a choice. It's not something that you lost. It just happened. Let's talk what about the think- family in the book. Okay, let's put this in the context of the family in the book. Talk about the family in the book. Ben, is <laughs> Yeah. The family, you know, from the outside, they look great. She's a social worker. He's a lawyer. They're in a nice home. They live in an interesting neighborhood in Boston. There's three kids, and, you know, they're smart, and they're doing well in school. But inside, you have a lot of tiptoeing around. You have a lot of waiting for that doorknob to open. You have waiting to see what your night's going to be like based on what his mood is when you walk in. And then... Once you have an accident happen, an awful lot of the responsibility falls on the teenage daughter. And that's why I did the book from the point of view of the husband, Ben, the wife, Maddie, and Emma, the teenage daughter. Because I think we're often invisible to the way things spill down on kids. Everybody becomes so um, observant of the victim or the victimizer, and we forget about the kids who are there absorbing every single thing. And then there's the question of truth. And uh, in this family, 
everybody keeps the truth from Maddie, including the kids. They're, they're told to, to be quiet and not to tell the truth. Well, not telling truth takes an awfully large toll, not just on the kids, but on a marriage. And those are all the things that I like to examine. You know, if you don't, and I just had this conversation with somebody, if you, I mean, that's kind of an, uh, an old saying, I guess. You know, if you don't see, seeking the truth really does set you free. There is something to that. I, I, I totally agree with you. So you are exploring in the book all this, the emotional abuse. And I don't think we have mentioned, but that Maddie has a traumatic brain injury. I mean, and so um, all of the, I mean, it forces the whole family to take a look at themselves and to, I guess, really understand their part in the whole picture or leading up to this horrific accident? Yes, and it, and it leads them one at a time to looking at what the truth is, what the, and especially for Maddie, the wife, in terms of realizing how being in denial keeps you from being authentic. And I think that's true for everybody in all relationships. The more we're in denial about, about either our own behavior or somebody else's behavior, the less we can really be present. And, not being, and, and people do an awful lot of things to not be present, to be in denial. You know, we take pills, we eat a lot, we drown ourselves in TV. Um, we and, do a lot of activities, and sometimes a lot of activities ostensibly helping others, getting involved, community, whatever it is, taking your kids to half a dozen social uh, sports events or, or actually participating in all the... I think this activity thing keeps us... that we're sort of obsessed with in our culture does exactly what you're saying. It keeps us away from, from our examining our own emotions in an honest way and our behavior. One of the things that I found, people will often ask me since I worked with criminals for so long, you know, can they change? Uh, and I would always say the same thing. It, they can change um, if they choose to. I can't make anybody change. And the reason, when, when you look at the barrier, barriers to change, one of the things that I think is the highest on the list is denial. And why do we have that denial? Because there's shame. Perhaps the men I worked with were very mean to their families. That did not mean, though, that they did not love their families. And recognizing that you've been mean to someone you love is very shameful. And so unless you're really brave, you won't admit it, so you don't feel that shame and guilt. You have to be courageous enough to face that you did something bad or something hurtful in order to move to the next step. Well, do you think that having had this experience and working with these men who are abusing their partners, do you think that the pattern of abuse, say, going back even generations, is so strong that it's almost impossible to be able to let go of it in some cases? It's so ingrained? I think speaking only from opinion and, and not doing any, you know, hard studies, I think the only thing that makes something impossible to change if it's hardwired in because there's um, a complete uh, psychological problem as in um, a sociopath, sociopathic behavior. Uh, I do not, I think most people who are abusive come from abuse in their backgrounds. I do not think being from an abusive background means you have to be abusive. I absolutely do not believe that. I believe we can recognize our behavior and change it, and I've seen it. I've seen it in my family. I've seen it in the um, men and women I've worked with doing 
uh, education, I absolutely think we're capable of change. I think thinking that we're doomed to something will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're talking to Randy Susan Myers, author of Accidents of Marriage, and where she explores the emotional abuse of, of one family. Um, all right, so should we get back to the book um, and, and, and talk about it in the context of the book again, uh, this emotional abuse and each one of the characters is, you know, Ben, Maddie, um, and Emma, who's a 14-year-old daughter. Let's talk about Emma. What, what's, what happened to her as a result of all of this, or what is happening to her in the, in the, in the book? Emma goes from being a very typical self-involved teen who's busy rolling her eyes and, and trying to learn about the world. And yes, is affected by her father's moods, but she's, she's pretty feisty, and she gives it back a lot of the time. She doesn't tend to go easily under anybody's thumb to feeling really guilty that somehow she wasn't nice enough to her mother, to feeling all the responsibility to taking care of her much younger siblings because she loves them and because there's nobody else there and she has to step up to the plate, and then being incredibly resentful and starting to act out herself. And in fact, doing what often happens, I think, in families, once there's, some, once there's recovery taking place, then letting her own anger come out. She becomes very angry at both her parents, and people have to look at her. She becomes almost invisible for a while, and that's very hurtful. Well, in cases of abuse that I've had experience with as a social worker, particularly when it's sexual abuse, for instance, and I'm sure uh, you're familiar with this, but you know when a father uh, is sexually abusing his daughter and the mother knows but doesn't do anything about it, and then once the family is in treatment, uh, yes, or an, even an older person who has been abused and, 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 and is in therapy will be just as angry, of course, at the, at their, the parent who, was, as you say, was in denial, who didn't do anything about it, who was, for whatever reasons, um, and, and gets re- as angry with that, that parent as with the one who is actually doing the abuse. One of the things that I found, and and this um, is not particular to my book at all, but I found that when working with men who were abusive in their homes, the children would often get angry at the other parent because Mm -hmm. it was so much safer. It didn't feel at all safe to get angry at the, the parent who was physically abusive. So you take that angry. Angry at the one who they see as the weak one. The one who's, right, yeah. why are you being so weak? Why are you not protecting me? Why are you taking this? You, you've mentioned a couple times your own family and that you had suffered from abuse and that there are other... Can you talk a little bit about your own family? Because I would imagine this is obviously some of the reasons or the motivation for writing the book or it's a part of it. Um, growing up, was, or did you, were you the only one in the family who was abused or... I actually wasn't abused in my family so much. My father tried to kill my mother when I was four years old, and I actually was there but don't remember it. My sister is three years older, and she would she told me exactly what happened. And then when I went to write about it, and actually my first novel, The Murderer's Daughters, which is a big what if, what if my father had succeeded, um, she says it came out exactly as it happened up until the death, which didn't happen in my family. So I was aware, but uh, my father was never abusive towards me. In fact, he was the good parent to me, which is strange. My parents were divorced at that point. 
But if your father was, was abusing an, your mother and almost murdered her, that is not directly, but indirectly it is abusive to of course to murder, yes, your mother. Right. No, no. Uh, uh, what I'm saying is at that time, he was my safe parent, which is, which is just, it was all very mixed up. But as, after my father died, and he died when I was very young, um, my mother was very um, verbally cruel to both my sister and I, um, and there was no lack of, of being smacked around. So I really have a sense of, of all those feelings, and what I explore in my novels um, is not the experience of what happened to me, because there's nothing that happened in any of my novels that's factually like what happened, but the emotional uh, essence of it. So you like decided to, to write novels. This is another question I'm sure you've been asked, as opposed to memoir, as a memoir. For Well, yeah. first of all, I have no interest in writing memoir. Um, it's just, you know, there are parts of my, um, my background which might be dramatic, but other than talking about the pinpoints, I would never, I don't feel comfortable talking about my children, my husband, my cousins, you know, it's just not, it's not my life to put out there. Uh, but, and also, novels have always been my, my retreat, my, my love, the place I live. I live in, in uh, a world of fiction. And I think fiction, for me, it's so much easier to tell truth in fiction than it ever would be in memoir. When you were younger, or was, you know, I'm thinking about your family, um, did you retreat into to reading, to novels, to fiction? Oh, yes. I was a reader. I, w- I went to my Brooklyn library daily because I, I read so much and so fast. I, I, you know, I couldn't take out enough books <laughs> otherwise. Uh, reading was my world. It really, really was, which is great. I think if I, had, I, I always uh, joke around that my life was saved by the, New York, uh, by the Brooklyn Public Libraries. <laughs> They'd be glad to hear that. I've written about. It. I've actually made good friends with uh, librarians, and 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 um, am a big supporter of of public libraries. That's great. So, all right. So it's it's not well. It's not an accident that you you were that you uh, have written these novels. Obviously, and we're talking about the book Accidents of Marriage. Um, what's been the response to your book? This one. Accidents it has of marriage. been great. I I cannot say how great it's been on a personal level, I've gotten an enormous amount of emails from women and some from men about how much it meant to them, and which made me feel really good because I think that the, that's where I think novels are really important. It's like sort of like the church choir, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, where you can see parts of yourself and the truth is told. Uh, and I'm, never, I'm not afraid in writing my books about people were thinking it's me. A long time ago, I gave up on that because people always think it's you. They think the murderer is you. They think you were the murdered person. They, if, if there's affairs, you had the affair. You were cheated on. So I've given that one up. You know, that, that's fine. Um, in terms of book clubs, it's been great. And it only just came out in September, and, and tons of people in People Magazine picked it as a pick of the week, which was lovely, and it was chosen as an indie bound for independent bookstores. So I've had a lot of great, really great response to it. 
What about the, you said you got a lot of responses, and yeah, it just came out, September. Uh, emails, like emails to some of the women who are writing to you, is there any kind of a theme in terms of like, you've helped them, obviously, have they been able to relate to the, to this book? So, in, in what way? And, and I kind of, I'm hearing from you that they are telling you, yeah, you've helped me, and I'd like to know, like, how? Most of the women that have written to me have said, I have not yet read any book that captures what it's like to live in a home with emotional abuse. Um, And that was the first time they saw some piece of their life on paper in a way that that made them feel heard and brave. A lot of them were talking about former marriages. Some were talking about marriages that changed for them. Uh, a lot of them were talking about their children, but they were all talking about seeing their truth on paper in some emotionally resonant way. So when they saw their truth, or when they see their truth on paper, then they're going to make different choices? I mean, perhaps women who are still in an emotionally abusive marriage, having read your book? It, it... I think what, when people see it on paper, they realize they're not alone, and they realize they're not crazy. Yeah, it validates their own feelings or their own experiences. Right, because we, you know, we, it's not around there. Uh, behind, that's what I mean about behind closed doors. People don't talk about, oh, my husband screams and yells at me. Oh, my husband throws crazy fits when he's driving. Oh, you know, m- my husband gets really angry when, you know, I, we, I, when the meal's not hot enough. Because they feel like, oh, that sounds so stupid. I sound like such a wimp. People don't want to feel like victims. They want to feel strong. So being able to see a strong person, because I think of, I think of Maddie as a very strong person, still being in denial, it makes them realize, oh, yes, this is normal. Normalizing things makes you more apt to, to change them, I think, rather than thinking that you are the, the only person that lets this kind of stuff go on in the world. I think sometimes, too, and this is a part of it, the person who is being abused, whether it's physical or emotional, um, maybe is really very strong. They have, they've put up with this person. I mean, not in a nece- not, I'm not saying necessarily in a good way, but somebody who were weaker may not have been able to, it's kind of kind of a crazy thing, been able to kind of live this cover-up and to live this life and to tolerate it and to have some sense of... Or, normalcy in their family. It's kind of convoluted, but there is a piece that, that's true. Well, actually, I think that you really hit on it, and I think there's another piece of it, too, that a uh, few, few recognize, which is that people think women who are abused, whether it be physically, mentally, anyway, are weak, but generally, the stronger somebody is, like, when you think of the ultimate reason that somebody's abusive, which is to control somebody, and if somebody's very strong it often takes more and more abuse to control them. Absolutely. We have 30 seconds left. I've just gotten so involved in this interview, so I do have to (laughs) say goodbye, but I want to repeat the book again. It's Accidents of Marriage, Randy Susan Myers. You can go out and buy it online and bookstores everywhere and continue with the dialogue. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Captain, thank you for having that 30, that 30 minutes went by like the wind. It did, for me too. We are <laughs> going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 